everyone, a very warm welcome to this Just Share debate. It's a great pleasure to welcome you to the first of our autumn programme, Can Capitalism Deliver a Living Wage for All? I'm delighted to welcome such an expert panel of speakers for our first debate of the autumn. In the chair is Lucy Anderson, who's Senior Legal Advisor to the GLA. Um, the GLA, as you probably know, houses the Living Wage Unit, which set the living wage every year. So you're in safe hands. I'll leave Lucy to introduce the speakers in just a moment. A couple of housekeeping notices before we start. At the back of the church, you will find some refreshments and a bowl for your donations, so please do make sure you stop by both of those after the debate is finished. If you want to know no more about Just Share, you can pick up a postcard at the back which tells you more about us, and you can also sign up to our mailing list, and then you'll be alerted to future debates, events, that sort of thing. Let me not take any more of your time. Let me hand over to Lucy to welcome the speakers. Thank you. Um, well, good afternoon, everyone. Can you hear me? Yeah? Okay. Um, thanks to Rachel, and thanks very, very much to Just Chair for organising this. At the GLA, we're extremely proud of the living wage policy. Um, it has survived a change of political administration. Uh, it's going from strength to strength, and we know from what people tell us that it's a very popular policy and one that people in London very much appreciate. Uh, I think also it's worth saying just at the outset that we don't simply pluck the figure for the living wage every year out of the, the air. We have a GLA economics team who have a sophisticated calculation. Now obviously all of these things can be done in different ways, but um, it takes into account living costs, changes in living costs in London specifically. So issues such as housing and transport that are particularly significant for London compared with some other places, childcare costs, um, and other issues. Now, I won't say any more than that, but um, Ian is going to go first. Ian has been head of workplace for KPMG in the UK since 2006, and I think it's fair to say that KPMG have been an absolute uh, leader in the uh, area of implementing the living wage in the private sector, and we've been very pleased at the GLA to work closely with them. Um, Ian has uh, also been responsible for KPMG's offices in Germany and has an, had a number of other roles in KPMG. So, uh, Ian, I think you're going to kick off. Um, so, he's going to go up to the pulpit. After Ian's spoken, Gavin will speak, and then we're going to have questions. Thank you, Lucy, Madam Chairman, and good afternoon, everyone. I've heard more references to capitalism in the last few days than when I was in the student common room many years ago. Indeed, in recent days, you may have begun to wonder if capitalism can deliver any wage at all. So whilst capitalism has negative connotations for some, I know from my experience at KPMG that we and other businesses can deliver a living wage in this market economy. And I will tell you this afternoon why we do so, why other businesses would benefit from doing so, and how with ethical leadership, defined values, and effective corporate responsibility program, business can deliver the living wage for all. To me, capitalism means working for a profit, to create wealth, investment, jobs, and so on. It doesn't have to mean blind and excessive pursuit of short-term gain. 
regardless of the uh, long-term shareholder value. Companies need to produce results today, but they don't survive the longer term without wise investment. So we need strong leadership with sound values. Businesses are essentially groups of people, human beings with a common purpose, expected to behave in a way consistent with their business's values. Embedded in everything we do at KPMG, our values, including leading by example, respect for the individual, commitment to our communities, create a sense of shared identity and define what we stand for. However, whether defined or not, a company's true values come from its leaders. Its leaders are the role models of behavior, of acceptable behavior. I think most of us would agree that the parental role model influences a child's behavior. And it works the same in companies. The people of business uh, within a business will care about those things its leaders care about. So shared values are essential to provide cohesion in any business. Values provide the bedrock upon which behavior is based. And let's be honest, unethical behavior, lying, cheating, stealing, are not the sole preserve of capitalism or capitalists. So at the heart of KPMG's values is its people strategy, which has resulted in our being named best big company to work for by the Sunday Times twice in the last three years. So we really do live the maxim, people are our greatest asset. We're a people business. We're dependent on our people. And it's not possible, really, to separate employees from any business. They are the business, increasingly so in a knowledge economy. So understanding and aligning our employee values with those of the business is critical to success. And we must recognize and reward accordingly. Hand in hand with our people strategy and sound economic management is our commitment to corporate social responsibility or creative capitalism, as some now call it. Ethical behavior and a commitment to those beyond the shareholders, our people and communities, relies on strong leadership. Paying the living wage and related employment benefits to our contract cleaners and caterers is part of that commitment from the top. And this isn't just about altruism. Corporate responsibility contributes to more efficient business. It offers a means by which companies can manage and influence the attitudes and perceptions of their stakeholders, building their trust and enabling the benefits of that positive relationship to deliver business advantage. Research suggests that most people want to work for a company whose values align with their own, and that a majority of young people believe in the power of responsible business practice to deliver profitability. So corporate responsibility is increasingly a key factor in attracting and retaining a talented and diverse workforce. Our last annual uh, people survey showed that almost all of our people believe KPMG is socially responsible and makes a positive contribution to the communities in which we operate. So for KPMG, paying the living wage is not just an important part of our values, our people's strategy, and our uh, award-winning corporate responsibility agenda, 
It's absolutely critical. As head of workplace, I have about 700 in-house and outsourced staff in our UK offices, many of whom are directly serving our clients. So their caliber, their motivation and loyalty is extremely important to us. Paying the living wage and improving other benefits like holidays, sick pay, insurance, have contributed significantly to our success. Here's how. Turnover amongst our cleaning staff has more than halved. Morale has been raised. And despite the improved sick pay, potential abuse has not materialized. Productivity's improved. Attitudes are more flexible and positive. Service has improved. Our help desk gets far fewer complaints. Now, here's the management speak. By taking an output-focused and whole-life-costing perspective, we've incorporated economic, social, and environmental factors into the decision-making process, which in plain English means we focus on achieving a clean workplace at best value, not on how little we can get away with paying the cleaners. On top of this, our suppliers, the cleaning and catering companies, have reduced training and other overhead costs as their employee lo loyalty has grown. So in our experience, capitalism doesn't just enable us to pay the living wage, it actually incentivizes us to do so. So ethical values, intelligent and courageous leadership, an inspiring corporate responsibility program, and a genuine and demonstrable recognition of everyone's contribution to the business can transform attitudes towards greater respect for our fellow human beings. Paying the living wage should be one element of this broad strategy. It's also about alleviating poverty. Over three quarters of the world's population struggles to meet its most basic needs. The role of business in providing the wherewithal to tackle such challenges was highlighted by Kofi Annan. He told the business community directly that they have the finance, the resources, and the technology to bring about the changes that are needed to address the world's major social and environmental problems. His rationale is clear and relevant. Business is the primary source of investment in productive capacity and the main employer in most societies. Many companies are leading the way, driven by their belief that corporate responsibility is essential to their business. And the business case for this is compelling. So it is possible to behave ethically and pay the living wage while working for a profit. It makes sense as a business strategy since it creates goodwill amongst employees, customers, and the wider community. Trying to increase profits by being unethical or ignoring such concerns will eventually result in increased cost and zero short-term benefit. We see it now in the credit crunch. The damage caused by irresponsible business practices far outweighs the cost of corporate social responsibility and unlike the latter brings no long-term benefits. Behaving ethically may mean taking a longer view, sacrificing some profit today to build goodwill and a strong reputation. Such investment is entirely consistent with capitalism. 
I read recently the uh, FT's business editor's comments, which I thought were uh, interesting. <clears throat> the companies that will be most resilient in this downturn will have talented and committed workforces, deep roots in their communities, and environmentally sustainable business models. Those that emerge the strongest when the economy turns up again will be those that have understood the social and environmental challenges facing them and stuck to their strategies for dealing with them. And whilst Jonathan Porritt questions whether capitalism really is capable of delivering a genuinely sustainable, equitable economy, he goes on to say, but it had better be. It's the only game in town and will be for many years to come. This means working with the grain of markets and free choice, not against it. It means embracing capitalism as the only overarching system capable of achieving any kind of reconciliation between ecological sustainability on the one hand and the pursuit of prosperity and well-being on the other. In other words, if the business of business stops being business, we all lose. I want to be a highly effective part of this solution. I can help KPMG make the right choice, and you can help your business. The good part is that we do this by doing exactly what we're paid to do, making the business more successful. So a business-led movement for social responsibility is our best chance, and we can increase the momentum by encouraging others to pay the living wage. I would like to think we're now in a new era of where community, humanity, and yes, morality really matter. And I think Gandhi said it best. Destruction of the capitalist must mean destruction in the end for the worker. Either is dependent on the other. Immediately the worker realizes his strength. He is in a position to become co-sharer with the capitalist instead of remaining his slave. So, ladies and gentlemen, capitalism can and is our best chance of delivering a living wage for all. Thank you. I go down. Gavin, so, Gavin, uh, Gavin is Assistant National Officer for Unison Bargaining Support, with responsibility for supporting the union's negotiators at local, regional and national level, and as you may know, Unison is Britain's largest public sector trade union, representing 1.3 million workers, and has always taken a close issue in, a close interest in the issue of the London living wage. I think I'm on. There we are. Yeah, hello. Um, as we've heard, the title of today's debate is Can Capitalism Deliver a Living Wage? Now, you'll be pleased to hear that I do intend to answer that question, but in the true spirit of trade union contrariness, I'll also be answering an additional question as well. 
For me, the crucial issue is not just can capitalism deliver a living wage, but will it? Is there a genuine possibility that we can persuade those people who have the final say over pay for the lowest paid workers in our society to take up the living wage route? I intend to argue that the answer to this question is no, and that as a result, the government should introduce a statutory living wage by rebranding the minimum wage and uprating it in significant increases. I believe that organisations such as London Citizens, trade unions, progressives in uh, the Labour Party and also can convince policymakers to introduce this radical step. Indeed, the examples set by organisations such as KPMG show what can be achieved when corporations take seriously their moral and ethical responsibilities. It's just that we cannot wait for all employers to realise this voluntarily. So let's turn to our substantive question. Can capitalism deliver a living wage for all? Well, to answer this question, we need to understand uh, what we're asking employers to pay. The, the family budget unit at York University, uh, in conjunction with academics from Loughborough University, have com completed a major study on this issue. Uh, it, this was um, asked for by the jo Joseph Rowntree Foundation. The aim of the study was to determine the level of income needed for a, an acceptable standard of living in the UK. They concluded that a single person with no dependents living in council accommodation needs at least £13,400 a year before tax. That's £257 a week, or £6.76 an hour. Now, clearly, there is a case for an even higher living wage in London. In July 2008, the GLA Living Wage Unit said that a worker in London taking account of full tax credits would need £7.45 an hour uh, to leave an acceptable lifestyle. So we can at least assume that, it, that the figure is between £6.76 and £7.45. Whatever figure used, this is significantly higher than the national minimum wage of £5.73 that is going to be introduced in October. Can employers afford to increase their, the wages of their lowest paid workers by at least £1 an hour? It's tempting to say automatically that they can with no adverse effects on the other parts of the economy. But in truth, the situation is not clear. While some economists insist that a rise would push up inflation and unemployment, others are not sure. In her recently published book, Unjust Rewards, Polly Toynbee sums up the vagaries of this debate uh, quite succinctly. So I'd just like to read a quote from her. She writes, could the minimum wage be raised? Economists draw supply and demand curves. In theory, if the price of supply, then if, if you raise the price of supply, then demand uh, will fall and jobs will be lost. The trouble is, they have no idea where the curves intersect. We are told at some notional point, demand for labor will fall because the min minimum wage has risen too high. But so far, the public house in Newcastle care home in Hampshire and supermarket in Bristol have not hit it and each would probably have different tolerances to higher pay. Open-minded economists say suck it and see, keep pushing up the rate until it starts causing job losses. So Toynbee at least believes that it's worth taking a risk. It's also worth noting that in 1998 the Tories and the CBI predicted that the introduction of a national minimum wage would precipitate one million job losses. In the subsequent decade, the minimum wage has risen and three million new jobs have been created. Successive annual reports of the Low Pay Commission have reported no negative effects of the national minimum wage on employment. 
in all probability, pushing up the national minimum wage by one pound an hour uh, would probably have more impact on profits and prices rather, rather than unemployment. But then as Toynbee says, if a person washing the dishes can't get, their, get by on their pay, then we aren't paying enough for the restaurant meal, and it's time that we did. But then let's look at it another way. Can employers, um, can employers who are paying the living wage save money as a result of doing so? We've heard from Ian about the advantages in service delivery and recruitment and retention. And I thought, think it's worth adding some other figures from the Char Chartered Institute of Personnel and Development. CIPD puts average turnover in the private sector as 22.9% in 2006, and turnover rate by profession was highest in the service-related jobs, traditionally the lowest paid. CIPD estimate that the average cost of turnover per vacancy is £7,750. They also say that it takes an average of 5.3 weeks to fill a manual craft vacancy. If a living wage can reduce these figures, as Ian has suggested that it can, then it surely would bring savings for employers. On balance then, in the long term, the UK economy could probably absorb the costs of introducing a living wage, um, although it, this may have to be something approaching it rather than the figures that we've, I officially mentioned earlier. The real issue is whether we just encourage and campaign for employers to introduce it, or do we uprate the minimum wage to force them to do so? So let's turn to my additional question. If we assume it can be afforded, Will capitalism deliver a living wage? What is the likelihood of the free market going down the living wage route without the need for regulation? Well, to answer this question, we need to understand employers' attitudes to low pay. The Low Pay Commission's 2008 report tells us of the evidence that they received from the CBI, the representative body of British business. It's worth reading an extract from this because it re reveals a deeply conservative and short-termist attitude to low pay. The CBI reported their members' concerns that substantial increases in the minimum wage had eroded pay differentials and damaged firms' ability to reward and motivate their employees. In some instances, they say pay rises at the lowest end had become decoupled from performance and there was little incentive for the lower paid to take on more responsibility or undertake training. No mention then of the morality of paying somebody poverty wages. No mention of the social impact, nor even any mention of the long-term business impact. Members of the CBI, according to this quote, see it as their right to pay poverty wages as a stick with which to motivate their low-paid empl low employees. The CBI is apparently uninterested in motivating staff through team building and good management. It wants to keep workers on the poverty line to increase their productivity. Similarly, when asked directly about the living wage in 2002, the Deputy General Secretary of the CBI said, quote, the national minimum wage has been a success so far because it has been set at a prudent level. It may well have, it may well have cost jobs if it had been set higher. It could have negative effects for the UK economy if it is in difficulty. How else might we gauge business attitudes towards uh, living wage? How about looking at the number of them who pay it right now? It's tempting to concentrate on, on the very worthy exceptions such as KPMG, but the truth is that employers pay poverty wages as long as they think that they can get away with it. Despite high-profile campaigns by the GLA and London citizens, 15% of full-time workers and 45% of part-time workers are paid beneath the GLA living wage rate today. We have to ask, if capitalism was ever going to deliver a living wage, wouldn't it have done so already? 
Employers seem to be ideologically wedded to the idea that low pay will help the bottom line. As Ian's shown us, this is not necessarily the case with every single business, but it does seem to be the wider trend. We could seek to persuade them all, but we'd still be here in 100 years if we tried to do that. Let's be honest, would we ever have achieved high levels of health and safety, food hygiene, trade union recognition, or payment of taxation unless democratically elected governments had stepped in and regulated? A living wage is no different. Recent weeks have given us a reminder of what happens when capitalism is left unregulated, unsupervised. They give huge rewards at the top and pay very little attention, if any, to those who carry out essential roles at the bottom of the wage structure. One silver lining uh, from the crisis created by the free marketeers in recent week, weeks is that there's a discernible and growing consensus among the general public that government needs to get back involved with the economy, ensure that the public interest is protected and advanced. As a consequence of this, I believe that the living wage is a step closer today than it was even a week ago. If the government ignores this mood, then it won't reach the targets it has set itself on the reduction of child poverty. On the other hand, if it has the courage of its convictions and takes a bold step to push the employment market in a direction that it would otherwise avoid taking, this could have a huge impact on the fight against poverty. We should applaud voluntary efforts uh, of companies such as KPMG um, for taking a stand whilst their, many of their peers um, try to decide that there isn't a problem at all. However, we should not accept a sugar-coated version of how the free market operates. Left to its own devices, capitalism will never deliver a living wage for all because it is not in its nature to do so. Just as with the NHS and state education, we must turn to the democratic socialist alternative. That is a statutory living wage. Thanks. Thanks, Gavin. And actually, the figures Gavin quoted, the 15% in London still not getting, full-timers not getting a living wage, it's worth pointing out also that the living wage in London is set at a relatively modest level and assumes that everyone takes up the tax credits and benefits they're entitled to. And we also know that London is the worst area in the country for that. So that's an issue for the future. And it also underlines the fact that even in this situation, still we've got 15% not getting the living wage. So now it's up to you. Um, do you think capitalism can deliver a living wage? Any questions, contributions? What do you think? We have a roving mic, by the way. Rachel, have you got it? Yeah. Um, this is more a question for you. Um, KPMG is a large city accountancy firm, if I can call it that, um, obviously has a large number of um, intelligent, well-trained, well-educated people working for it, and uh, is a, a very people-focused business. There's not much mundane to be done there. I, I accept your comments about uh, motivation of the cleaning staff and such things. Does that mean that you can afford to be quotes, more ethical than perhaps other people might who are running what might more colloquially be called um, very mundane, repetitive, manual jobs where there is um, uh, you know, um, old factory work, as it were, um, where the um, 
motivation that just you are employing someone to do something fixed where there's a very easy replacement for such people? Um, and does that mean that you, you are not, a cons not constrained but operate in a slightly different marketplace than perhaps some other, other employers for whom there might not be in an unregulated capital market um, the same increase in productivity that you've seen by offering higher wages? Yes, we operate in a different marketplace. Um, but the, the living wage, if you look at the cost of implementing it, is still quite substantial. And I think it all comes back to how much you're prepared to invest in people. And I'm not sure that differs between organizations. That's a decision, the leaders of the organization, whether it's a small company uh, or a large organization, make. And clearly, over time, um, I guess the more you invest in that, the larger the organization becomes. So in theory, it might become more affordable. But I don't really see any fundamental difference between the approaches of the uh, owner-proprietor of a business, for example, or the director of a large company. If either people are their greatest asset or they're not, you know, is it lip service or are they going to put their money where their mouth is? And in my experience, when they do the latter, they actually reap dividends. So there is a risk with any investment, but I don't think I've seen investment in people not repaid many times over, regardless of the size of the organization. Um, Chair, my name is Neil Jameson from London Citizens. Just to thank the GLA, Unison, and uh, KPMG for magnificent leadership on this point. Gavin may have a point, but I don't know how long that's going to take for any national government. So I su we support the, both of your points. If KPMG leading the way with Price Waterhouse Cooper and others is obviously very, very important by example, but it doesn't always work. The reason London Citizens started this campaign in 2001 is just a couple of things really. Was the, the, the major incentive for our members, which is uh, we're an alliance of faith groups, trade unions, and schools, and student unions, and we hope one day St. Mary's may join us. Um, the, the incentive for us was that, frankly, when we did a rounds of our members as to what was happening to families in East London in 2001, it was the same thing. They were not getting as much money as they used to get. They didn't get pension contributions, which they used to get. They had insecure jobs, and basically families were threatened. Family life, neighborhood life was threatened. In about 2003, when we were still struggling to make the point, there was a meeting which Stephen Timms chaired at the House of Commons, and the cleaning companies came with some of the major banks, and they said, if we pay a living wage, this would be 30% cut in our profit base. And one of our leaders, Paul Reagan, made the very good point that, of course, there is a cost, as Ian has said, to paying a living wage. But frankly, it has to be covered by somebody. But currently, this was 2001, and 2003, rather, it's covered by our communities. Our families and our neighborhoods suffer if people are paid less than the living wage. Even that is not enough, because it requires them to get credits and so on. So the, there is a cost, as Ian is saying, and that is suffered by lots of London neighborhoods, South London, North, West, and East, 
who frankly have to cover the cost of not paying a living wage. So that's a big incentive for us, and until a national government does do what Gavin says, if that's going to happen, we will continue to campaign. The campaign is now broadened to most of the sectors in the city. It remains a voluntary obligation built into the procurement policy of companies as the easiest way of doing it. And as I say, we are blessed by Europe having the only city in Europe. The mayor of London sets the example uh, that pays a living wage, a civic living wage, and we hope other companies will follow it because it just makes economic sense, it makes business sense, it makes security sense, and it makes neighborhood sense. And so for the others of you listening to this debate, go home, or rather go back to work, and ask whether your company pays a living wage. Because it is often pressure from the workers. People haven't, haven't thought about doing it. But frankly, everybody here has a responsibility to at least ask. If they say no, you've heard the arguments for it, and we hope the city will take this up, as they have other initiatives in a strategic way. Because it helps the rest of London tremendously. Any other comments? I was curious to hear the, um, the wage linked to performance because I'm an MBA student and everything that I've studied in the HR thing says that pay and performance are not really linked at all. And I think the, the recent gentleman's comments about the benefits made clear why it's important rather than as a motivational tool for workers. Just to clarify on that, is the thinking that pay and performance aren't linked at all, at either at the top end or the bottom end? It's the, it's the hygiene factors and the other investments in people in an organisation that create much better long-term benefit and impact on motivation, and pay has a very short-term impact. Well, I'm sure that's true. I mean, I don't wish to disagree with you, but, but at the, the middle and higher ends, but is there really research that shows that if people are paid incredibly badly, um, it actually makes no difference to their performance? That's what all the research that we studied showed. Okay. Well. Um, hi, well, in response to that question, um, hi everyone, my name is Musa. I'm a living wage organiser. And my job is to run living wage campaigns in the universities in London. And I'm doing this on the back of a living wage success which we had at Queen Mary University, which will hopefully answer your question. At Queen Mary University, they, you know, they used to have uh, good wages. The cleaners used to have good wages. They used to have pension contributions, etc. And uh, we ran a campaign against them, um, you know, with them, not against them, sorry, with the, uh, to try and convince the management to pay a living wage, give back all the, uh, the, the additions that they had, uh, pensions, etc. We did this by bringing together the communities around the university, bringing the church, bringing the, the local mosque, the, the school, to talk about how important it was for their community. And the results that they got from that was uh, astounding. They now pay eight pounds, which is higher than the living wage. The living wage is currently set at 7.45 by the mayor. Uh, they have a pension scheme and they have better sick pay. The results are that for the 60 or so jobs they had for cleaners, they had about 500 applications. And the university, by all standards, everyone, you know, everyone we've spoken to is spotless. Performance is much better 
um, uh, in terms of you know cleanliness, hygiene, uh, you know the points that Ian made, you know turnovers a lot less. You know it makes business sense, but the performance is definitely a lot better. Um, just another point about you know I think the the two speakers aren't in contradiction. Ian saying they can, um, Gavin saying they will not. Um, but in the absence of you know, regulation, what do we do? Well, we have to campaign our own institutions, and that's where Ian's point about strong leadership comes in. And the only way we can build strong leadership is bringing communities together on this issue and campaigning our institutions to do so. Okay, thanks. Well, I mean, I, I do think we're slightly skating over the main issue, which to some extent, I mean, has been touched on, but it is, it is about voluntarism as against regulation. And what it really comes down to is do its government policy and do we want the national minimum wage, as it were, to be uprated and basically put on a regional basis um, and linked to the cost of living. And that's, that's what it comes down to. And we know what the CBI would say, absolutely not disaster for unemployment, disaster for the economy. But, but is, it, is that something that, that should happen? Silence. <laughs> Hi, I'm Jonathan. I think my comment would be that um, I think that, that it does need to happen, but I think there needs to be not only a change of the law, but also, uh, as Ian has pointed out, that there needs to be a change of mentality because it doesn't really um, work in the long term to just change and improve people's wages because I think that, that there's almost a kind of, in my mind, almost a stingy mentality as opposed to mentality that actually um, wants to see people grow and enjoy and enjoy themselves in their job, and I think that you can almost twist someone's arm into raising the, the minimum wage, but that doesn't reflect through in the in the ethos and the approach that they take to their staff. I think there needs to be a re-education, and in the in the in the meantime, obviously, then um, the law has to protect uh, in the process. Neil, another go. Okay, go on then. London Citizens doesn't have a position on that particularly. One of the disincentives for the minimum wage is when we approach companies about why don't you pay a living wage, they say, well, we do at least pay a minimum wage. Sorry, they don't say it like that, but that's sort of how it comes across. So there is a strong argument that minimum wage keeps wages down. The, uh, the dream of everybody being like KPMG, it may seem naive, however, the opportunity for capitalism, the best of capitalism is its ability to compete in a free market. The worst of it is that it competes sometimes very negatively. And uh, as Gavin says, it does end up with the lowest common denominator. So if you like, the disincentive of Gavin's position would be companies would say that's what we pay. That's the bottom line. It, it has led to people being stuck at the bottom level and just only ever getting, particularly in the hotel sector, lots of evidence. The only time they ever get a pay rise is when effectively the low pay commission recommend it. Uh, whereas we're about to start a major campaign on the hotels to get them up to pay a living wage. We hope with Mayor Johnson's support so that by 2012 every hotel in the city is paying a living wage because the neighbours are <laughs> persuading them to do so with banners and everything we have to do to get them to do so. So it's a disincentive for campaigning, I guess, if that's the case. Um, so um, equally we would not be comfortable with ever saying people shouldn't get more wages if it has to be statutory, it has to be statutory. 
Okay, Gavin, I'm going I'm to let you come back anyway in a minute, but before we go to Gavin, um, I'm going to let Gavin come back and then I'm going to let Ian have the last word. Um, but are there any other points that people want to make? Yes, I will. Gavin, don't worry, I will not forget. Um, surely this figure is far too low in any case, isn't it? Even the living wage. Because if you're basing it on a single person living in a council house, where in London can any single person get in a council house? Well, I mean, on that... Um so surely their housing costs are far more than that. Yes. So asking them to pay, what, £7.50 or whatever it is, is a false, false figure. They yes. can't survive on that either. Well, the calculation is a lot more complicated than that, and it takes into account everyone's circumstances and averages it out, because we, we simply can't have a, a very large number of, um, of different figures, depending on precisely the person we're talking about. My, so I you think... My so you think Matt wants to, I mean, I absolutely agree with you about the council house point. Matt, do you want to add to that? Matt's my colleague at the GLA. It's calculated through living costs, but also in terms of um, looking at um, how much it costs for uh, one working in a family with, with two children and then you know, a couple wi without any children and then somebody single. And that's all brought together and collated together. Um, as Lucy said, it's impossible to have five or six different, different types of living wage because it's just too difficult to implement. Um, well, you're absolutely right. We need more social housing, and um, yeah, I don't think anyone here would, would disagree would with that. debate that, yes. I mean, that's, that, that's an, another debate. Um, yeah. But um, on, on that point, the, the, the mayor has now been given additional powers and control over the housing budget to encourage more social and affordable housing. So it's going to be a longer-term thing, but we're hoping very much that that will change in London and the situation will improve. But I agree, it's a complete crisis. Yeah, yeah, this is true, and I, I mean, I agree with that. But we've had, um, we're actually undertaking a benefit study, looking at living wage and looking at the benefits to business, but also to the employees. And we've had good evidence saying back that employees have actually. Um, they, 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 they are now having one, one full-time job in cleaning as opposed to having three or four different jobs which disrupts family life. And also some of them have actually been able to obtain some, some further education because they have more time on their hands because they're working less hours and getting paid better. So, um, I mean, we think you know, there's overall benefits to the employee but also to the business, which Ian's out, outlined earlier. Okay. Um. Um, hello everybody, my name is, is Lawrence. Um, I also work at London Citizens, but also work with the Contextual Theology Center um, at the Royal Foundation of St. Catharines with Angus Ritchie in, in Limehouse. Um, and in addition to that, I, um, I'm also studying at Oxford University, um, where there is also a living wage um, campaign taking off, um, asking the colleges uh, to pay the cleaners um, uh, a living wage there. And that is, a, that is an interesting situation where um, in, in the city, we, we, in, in London, we have uh, extreme affluence living right next door to 
um, extreme poverty, and that is a very similar situation in Oxford, where we have people um, who have grown up in areas of extreme opportunity, um, living right next door to uh, people who are finding it very difficult to survive um, in this economic uh, circumstances. Um, and I really want, wanted to say something. Uh, in, in reference to the building that, that we're having this debate in, um, it may be, it may be uh, somewhat false to reduce this debate to, to merely a matter of, of numbers and, and profit margins, um, when really what we're talking about here um, is, is how we treat people in our society. Um, and whether or not people of faith um, see their faith as something between 9 and 11 o'clock on a Sunday morning, or whether or not people who are in business uh, look at every single life that they, lives that they touch um, in their actions every single day. Um, and so to, to reduce this debate merely to uh, you know, whether, whether or not uh, businesses can do this, um, we should, I, I would implore everybody to uh, go back and speak to the businesses that they come from and ask them what they are doing uh, for the people in society whom they have influence over. Thank you. And also, I'd say put, put political pressure on your local councils, because it's not just the businesses, it's also crucially the local councils. Um, Okay, well, I hear your point, but it also comes back to the, the, what I've said partly about the tax credit and benefits issues, because um, London in particular, and in many areas of the country, but particularly London, um, it's incredibly hard to get people to take up the benefits that they're entitled to. So if you, I mean, I know there are campaigns around a citizen's income, and there are issues about universal benefits as opposed to means-tested benefits, but the fact remains, if you deliver it through the pay packet, it's far more likely to get there than if you rely on people individually to go through a very complicated tax and benefit system. I'm not saying it can't be done by the state, but we know that delivery through employers does achieve certainty where other mechanisms don't necessarily do that, but it, it's a very valid point. Would it, would it be equally acceptable for the state to pick up the tab, but for the actual cash payments to be delivered through the pay packet? Would that well, so be satisfactory to people here? Well, I, there, is, there, there have been previous benefits delivered like that in the past, and I know that employers have had concerns about being involved in that. So I don't know if Ian wants to comment on that. I'll, I'll park that. So Ian, if Ian wants to comment on that um, at the end. Now, we, we've almost run out of time, and I want to give Gavin and Ian a quick chance to say a few words at the end. So if there's anyone who hasn't spoken yet, please say. Otherwise, I'm going to hand back to Gavin who's over there and doesn't have a mic. But thanks, Rachel.
thanks. I was itching to get back in there. Um, yeah, just on the, on the point that was raised um, just before about, um, uh, you know, why should uh, companies be uh, paying a living wage and not, not the state? I'd, uh, you know, and the fact that this is, you know, this could have terrible consequences. I have to say that exactly the same points were made before the introduction of the national minimum wage, precisely the same way. And all of the, the doom and gloom that was predicted didn't come to pass. And I don't think that putting an extra pound, probably a little bit more than that, onto the bottom rates of pay um, would have a terrible effect on the economy. I just think on balance, um, we've, we've got to push the envelope a little bit because, as has been said, the, the costs are being paid elsewhere in society. Um, just on, uh, several people have, have kind of raised the issue of, um, you know, is there a conflict between the regulatory or the voluntary route? And I have to say I'd agree with those people who said there isn't a conflict. There's, there's obviously no conflict between calling for a, a statutory living wage and, and campaigning for individual companies to do so. Um, but I would say that you know, a couple of people have mentioned that it's kind of something in the future, a, a statutory minimum wage is something we can look to in the future, it's, it's out there on the horizon. I, I, I don't think it's pie in the sky. I think this is something where we can actually build a consensus and put pressure on the government to introduce this. I mean, the living wage has been called for in editorials of the Daily Mirror. We've got Boris Johnson now who's overseeing um, a, a living wage uh, campaign basically in his own administration. I think the living wage is going mainstream and I think if, if the Labour Party is looking for a, a, an issue to put in its next manifesto at the next general election that is a real red line issue and shows they're serious about tackling poverty and meeting their child poverty targets, I think the living wage is the issue to go for. Um, uh, I, finally, just to, to round up, I'd say um, though there's no conflict between a regulatory and a voluntary route if we only go the voluntary route, if we only campaign individually for, for certain companies to introduce a living wage, we'll be sat here again in 10, 20, 30, 40 years' time, and capitalism will still not have delivered the living wage for all of the people who deserve it. Okay, thank you. I don't have much to add, really. Um, I don't have a strong view about the legislative uh, option. Um, I just remember reading in a unison produced paper about 12 months ago <laughs> that 18% um, gap between male and female pay existed today. Now, that legislation, I think, was passed in 1973. So legislation's not the sharpest instrument for uh, bringing about good outcomes and I don't know about you, but uh, I guess most of us in this room work until April or May in a typical year before we start receiving our money because it's <laughs> the rest is supporting public expenditure. So we have to be aware of the impact of more and more and more legislation. Having said that, obviously there's some political and legislative framework needed in the economy, particularly with the impact of climate change. So whether this is the most appropriate instrument for the living wage to make it statutory. Um, I think the jury is still out on the minimum wage, actually. So. Okay, all right. Well, thank you all very much for coming, and thanks to our speakers for a very interesting debate. And we did, def I mean, we have def we did definitely have a debate. There wasn't a, there wasn't a universal agreement on everything. Um, so hopefully this issue will run and run.
and um, thank you very much. <laughs>